we live in such an amazing time, the 21st century. We're seeing scientists coming into this mystical view where they're, they're debating Einstein's concept of space-time and quantum mechanics. There are two explanations for how the universe works. They both sort of make sense, but we think, yeah, but they both can't be true. And they both have anomalies. What's so amazing about our understanding of the universe is we continue to come to these places where we find anomaly after anomaly, and then we have to change our paradigms. We have to change the way we conceptualize the world. And we keep on thinking that with the last paradigm, okay, now we know how God really did it. No, you don't. The way God did it is way beyond our understanding. And if the universe itself is beyond our understanding, how much more is its creator? That's why Jesus doesn't tell us much about God. And when he does tell us stuff about God, it's shocking. You know, in Luke, he says, in Luke 6, chapter, he says, uh, you're supposed to be like God, who's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. We never heard that before. He doesn't tell us a whole lot about God because we couldn't comprehend it anyway. What he tells us is who we should be in relationship to God. And he tells us, I said this to somebody the other day, and they said, duh. I said, what Jesus shows us is who God would be if he became a human being. And the person said, well, duh, that's what we believe. Yeah, but think about that. Think about that. That's amazing that the most we can know about God is what he would be like if he became a human being. And that's the Jesus revelation. The body, the blood, who can stand against this love? The body, the blood, who can stand against this Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, and I am glad that you were here. Today's conversation is fan-flippantastic. So many things during it made me just take notes. Uh, Before we get into that, though, thank you so much for those that have reviewed the show on iTunes or Podbean. Got a lot on Podbean lately, a lot of comments there, and I like that I'm able to engage in the comments there. And so, anyway, if you haven't reviewed the show, if you haven't told your friends about the show, stop what you're doing and do that now. I would also encourage you, as you're talking to your friends about the show, and you're recommending it to your family or whomever, person in your church, person that you live next door to, two requests of you. If you have not yet and you've been considering, you know, do I have a buck a month to spare? You do. I can tell you right now that you do because it's it's a dollar. I would encourage you to go to patreon.com slash can I say this at church. Click the button. Help support the show. You'll get some extra content. Trying to get better about different forms of content that go on there that aren't just early versions of the show. Although the unedited version of the show is one of my favorite versions uh, for a couple reasons. You get the random jokes that didn't work. You get my flubs and all of the ums and and the before and the after versions of the podcast. The the run-up to Let's Do This and the afterwards are almost a different show in and unto themselves. Also, I have started a Slack page, and it will be included in the newsletter if you're not in there. I'll also put links to all that in the show notes. Um, I would like to try to get into a consolidated place to to make everything a little more manageable for us conversating with each other, because not everyone's on Facebook. Not everyone's on Twitter. A lot of people are on those, and they don't want to be on those. And so trying to find a place that's siloed, that we can have conversations to be honest with each other, and we'll see how it goes. We live in a world today that, depending on the way that you want to take it, truth is whatever I need it to be. In a world of fake news, and in a world of, my friend told me this, and he's a smart guy, so it's got to be this, or this person told me this, and she's a smart lady, so it's got to be this. Truth matters. And I think as we think back through the history of the church, the way that the church has applied truth to faith has sometimes been good, but has oftentimes been damaging to the world that we live in, even as I think about right now, I mean, even today, they want to change, you know, school curriculum and the way that we revisionist history and the way that we talk about people, and it impacts everything about our worldview in a way that our truth is is shifted in an Overton window style. So I had the opportunity to, sh- to speak with um, Professor James Donaher. He has a book that's out in March on truth and identity in prayer. And I'm telling you right now, as I read through this book, I kept highlighting and highlighting and highlighting. It is fantastic. Between his and um, a book called Touched by God that I've read as well from Padre Luigi Giorgia, those two books, they go so well together. And so this episode with James literally shifted my view on really my patience with others. This conversation is fan 
fantastic. The book is even better, uh, and I think that you should get it. I may send it, but I think that you should get it. This, I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Here we go. Let's roll the tape with James Donaher. Professor James Donaher, thank you so much for coming on to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I was elated. Uh, it's been months, pretty sure it's months, uh, when I was able to get in, in contact with you and you were able to get me your book that's coming out in March. And and I was excited to get into it. And then as I read it and, and read and, and, and wrestled with it, I had to slow down. I, want, I, I began consuming it a little too quickly. And, uh, and parts of it I had to go back and read. So um, thank you again for making the time to coming on to the show. Oh, you're quite welcome. I always like to start this way. For anyone that is unfamiliar with either the topic at hand or the con- or the or the individual that I'm speaking with, and so Jim, just if you'll quickly bring us through, you know, what makes you kind of your upbringing and what brought you, you know, along in your career and your thought process to to doing what you do today. Oh, that is a strange story. Uh, I have a book called The Second Truth. And uh, in it, I talk a little bit about my background. I was a terrible student uh, when I was a kid. I I actually didn't read a book until I was 22 years old. Uh, When I was 22, I uh, read a book, and it sort of got carried away with it. And I've read a lot of books since. And uh, I went from a D student to an A student overnight and eventually did three master's degrees and a PhD uh, in philosophy. I started publishing in the early 90s, mostly articles. Uh, My dissertation, I guess it all goes back to my dissertation, was on John Locke on real and nominal essences. And I guess what really uh, informs my Christianity is the fact that all of our concepts are nominal concepts. Uh, You know, Aristotle had believed that uh, language mirrored nature. Uh, That got destroyed uh, 500 years ago or 400 years ago when the microscope was invented. And uh, we discovered that there's a whole world that Aristotle knew nothing about. And that world is actually responsible for the kind of things that exist in this world. Uh, and without a, a, an inherited nomenclature for that world, we had to make up these concepts. And uh, all of our concepts are basically nominal uh, and when I bring that into my Christianity, I'm always asking, you know, what, is, what does Jesus mean when he says faith? Uh, and, you know, scholars in the past would say, well, look in the Greek. Well, the Greek doesn't help. Uh, look in the Aramaic. That, no, Jesus, I always say to my students, Jesus ain't from around here, you know? <laughs> uh, he's got different concepts. And when you look at the two times in the Gospels where he says great faith, has nothing to do with what we think of as faith. The one is the Sinophonician uh, woman, uh, and the other is a Roman centurion. Neither one of them are Jews. They're not uh, of his religious background at all. But he says to both of them, great faith. In all of Israel, I haven't found faith like this. He has a different concept of, of faith. He has a different concept of love. And I guess all of my books have been about trying to reconceptualize the gospel according to Jesus' concepts. Uh, I had a book come out in 2006 called, uh, my title was Postmodern Jesus, but the publisher always picks the title, and the publisher's title was uh, Eyes That See, Ears That Hear, Perceiving Jesus in a Postmodern Context. And I've been, yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, it was a smart, smart publisher. Uh, and I'm always rethinking these things. And in this recent book that's coming out March 1st, I'm rethinking the concepts of truth, prayer, identity, and how they play into the spiritual journey. And we've inherited a concept of truth that is epistemic. It's about what you know. You know, Aristotle said that we're involved in three basic activities, making, doing, and knowing. When we make, we want to make what's beautiful. When we do, we want to do what's good. And when we know, we want to know what's true. Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he's talking about a way to be. 
And that's how we miss the gospel completely. We think the gospel is about believing a certain doctrine, believing a certain theology. And it's not. It's a way to be that Jesus is calling us to. So with that understanding, I reinterpret uh, both prayer and uh, the scripture. Uh, And I see that it's a spiritual journey. We're not, I've been doing this for about 40 years, this Christian thing. And uh, I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm still amazed. I'm doing a book right now on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just amazed. My God, does anybody pay attention to the things that Jesus is saying here? Do you this is um, unbelievable? Do you think that this the goal of every theology? Pardon, I'm you, sorry. No, that's fine. Do you think that the goal of Christianity is to get there yet? I mean, just to just to build off of that again, should that be the ultimate or one of the well, goals? Well, I, I think the ultimate goal of uh, Christianity is to uh, be Jesus to the world. And the way we do that is by internalizing the words of of Jesus, uh, taking them seriously. And we just, I say to to Christians all the time, don't you find it strange that what we call the gospel has nothing to do with the four gospels? It's from scriptures outside the gospels that we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth and end of story. No, that's just the beginning of the story. The end of the story is the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon on the story, uh, the, the end of the story, is Jesus' words and internalizing those words. Uh, and it's an ongoing process. And what's really interesting about it is it's not so much about getting it right and, and internalizing all of Jesus' words and living the way Jesus lived, but living in a state of repentance for not forgiving everybody, for not uh, for judging people, for not uh, doing all of the, not loving your enemies, not doing the things that Jesus calls us to do. And it's that constant state of repentance, I think, that brings us down to the place that we can be Jesus to the world. So I don't, Rick, Richard Rohr has a great line where he says, uh, it, you don't come to God by doing it right. You come to God by doing it wrong. Mm. And the only way you do it wrong is by paying attention to the words of Jesus. Well, and being honest with yourself, two two questions. One is really quick. So you said a, a, a word earlier that I want to make sure everyone um, rehears and knows what it means in case it comes up again. So what do you mean when you say epistemological? Because uh, that's oh, a word that we don't really use right. ever. Sure. Uh, in philosophy, there's branches of philosophy. One is uh, epistemology, which is the study of the way we acquire knowledge. And the other is ontology, which is the study of being. And truth as being, ontological truth, is different from epistemic truth. And Jesus is talking about epistemic truth. He is the truth, uh, his being, and the being that he's calling us to. Epistemic truth is having knowledge, uh, believing the right things. And I say all the time, you know, uh, Satan has all the right theology. He, he believes the right things. He just hates those things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the distinction that that's that's the thing that I'm critical of with Christianity today. That it's about believing the right things, and those things change over time. Uh, our theologies, you know, people think that what they're believing as doctrine and theology is something that Christians have always believed. When you study the history of Christianity, that's not the case at all. But the words of Jesus have not changed in the last two thousand years, and what the Church, the way that we value truth has changed over time. Well, the way our interpretation of what the gospel is over time has changed. Uh, what hasn't changed is the practice of prayer, of contemplative prayer, of, of uh, the saints have, who have been people who wanted to be Jesus to the world and took Jesus' words seriously and internalized those words. And part of the the message of the book is that the only way we can really do that is from the place of prayer. I I argue that prayer prayer is a place that you go to uh, in order to have the Jesus perspective and be able to make sense of Jesus' words. As long as we're in the world, Jesus' words don't make sense. Uh, We, you know, I remember a guy saying to me once, you know, I love the Bible, but that love your enemy stuff, that's a bit much. Of course it's a bit much. That's the point. It's, it's, it's the kingdom. It's not the world. And the, the Bible is about God meeting us in the world 
And the gospel is about Jesus calling us out of the world and into his kingdom. About in the book, and I feel like it's chapter one, maybe it's chapter two, is in my philosophy class because I was aggravated by it. <laughs> Although, if I could go back in time, I think the way that I'm wired now or what interests yeah. me now, I would really like to go back. But I can't, yeah. I can't do that. And so instead, I'll talk to you. Um, so you talk about... <laughs> its relationship to truth right. and then the question that I wrote on that on that and from what I remember what you what you wrote is you know that churches throughout history thought that they had to have uh that, that for something to be true it has to make a logical sense right and that but that that theory in my mind makes room for multiple truths exactly. you know if we if we take it to something today you know a, a presbyterian can believe this and a baptist can believe this and we're both interpreting or even like the concepts of hell right. you know people will 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 translate and 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 hear this as a truth of eternal conscious torment god forbid yeah. or evangelical universalism uh, or something altogether different and so how does that understanding or how should that understanding of truth impact the way that we make room for truth, period, at all? Yeah. You know, uh, we live in such an amazing time. The 21st century, we're seeing scientists coming into this mystical view where they're, they're debating Einstein's concept of space-time and quantum mechanics. There are two explanations for how the universe works. They both sort of make sense. But we think, yeah, but they both can't be true. And they both have anomalies. What's so amazing about our understanding of the universe is we continue to come to these places where we find anomaly after anomaly, and then we have to change our paradigms. We have to change the way we conceptualize the world. And we keep on thinking that with the last paradigm, okay, now we know how God really did it. No, you don't. The way God did it is way beyond our understanding. And if the universe itself is beyond our understanding, how much more is its creator? That's why Jesus doesn't tell us much about God. And when he does tell us stuff about God, it's shocking. You know, in, in Luke, he says, in Luke 6 chapter, he says, uh, you're supposed to be like God, who's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. We never heard that before. He doesn't tell us a whole lot about God because we couldn't comprehend it anyway. What he tells us is who we should be in relationship to God. And he tells us, I said this to somebody the other day, and they said, duh. I said, what Jesus shows us is who God would be if he became a human being. And the person said, well, duh, that's what we believe. Yeah, but think about that. Think about that. That's amazing that the most we can know about God is what he would be like if he became a human being. And that's the Jesus revelation. Yeah. Yeah. And there's entirely more to, oh. there's entirely oh, more, a, a God of a cosmic universe has to no. be more than that. Or what a, what a puny yeah. God. But that's an entirely yeah. separate conversation. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's entirely separate. Boiling it down to, to me as a person, you know, I decide truth. And so there's a part in your book that you write about that we, we take our truths and then we make those equate to value. And so like in America, it's, uh, it's capitalism. It's, I have more stuff than you. Look at this house. These columns are right. fantastic. And I bought a brand new Tesla. It's my third one. And somehow that, <laughs> that makes me, that makes what I have to say have more weight or more truth yeah, sure. and, and the value. And then you also relate truth and value to how the church has been complicit in racism. And so I wondered if you might break those two things apart a bit and kind of go into that a little. We, we still are basically Aristotelians. We believe that language gives us access to reality, and we believe our cultural concepts, that we know what love is, we know what right and wrong are, and, and we read the gospel through that. So what we do is the hard words of Jesus that present anomalies to whatever our theology might be, uh, we just ignore those things because they don't fit with our culture. Uh, it's the reason why... I'm an evangelical, and the reason why evangelicals love the Bible, but they hate the Gospels. They stay away from the words of Jesus. Why? Because they will destroy whatever theology you develop. How then does does that does that type of truth or the way that we treat truth, how do, do you boil that down to racism a few times in so much as— right. 
if you, you know, separating people into other because they can't understand our truth and dehumanizing people because of yeah. the words that we use. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get a grip on that. I, I didn't realize I mentioned racism that much. I do. I do talk about racism all the time. And I think we're, we're all racist uh, because we grew up in a racist culture. Uh, I grew up in, in northern New Jersey. And not only was my high school segregated, but the entire league. I never played against black athletes. Why? Because we lived, we lived in a racist society. Yeah. If I remember right, you were talking about, you know, this truth could work as long as we're on this continent. And then as the church spreads its wings, you know, and, and encounters people in South America and encounters people in the Caribbean and right. people in the you know Hawaiian Islands or any other culture, and the way that they talk, if, if our truth is based on an understand common language in, you know, right. up means up. And, you know, I mean, I just yeah. learned something the other day about, you know, some civilization and, and navigating the sea for people from the Hawaiian cultures. And that's probably the wrong way to say Hawaiian culture, but I can't think of the right word. You know, they say things like, I'm heading sunward or away from the sun. They don't go north. They, it right. might be north, but it's different. And so when exactly. I remember you writing that, you know, when they encounter that, these people have a different set of truth. So that either means that I'm wrong and I'm not willing to deal with that, or they right. obviously are some form of other species that looks like me, but definitely not, not equal with me. Yeah, it's the section of the book where I talk about the origins of racism. Either you're going to give up Aristotle and, and realize that we don't have a way to conceptualize the world the way God did, or we see that people who have different concepts are not godly people. And that's the problem of bringing our conceptual understanding to the gospel and demanding that the gospel conform to our understanding. I remember there was a debate uh, at NIAC when I was teaching there. Uh, there was a, a, a hunting and gathering group that they had discovered, and they were trying to translate the gospel for this group. But this group, uh, their, their basic substance was not bread, but pig. So uh, the question was, when we translate, Jesus is the bread of life, should we translate it, Jesus is the pig of life? And, and people were so upset about that. You can't say that Jesus is the pig of life. Well, that's the only way it would make sense to those right. people. Uh, but that's the, that's the idea of taking my culture and thinking it's somehow sacred. There's, uh, one of, I knew a missionary that was a missionary in Laos. And when he first went there, he would ask people how to uh, get to a certain place. And they'd say, go north. And he'd go north and he'd get lost. And then he finally found out that go north meant go upriver. It didn't mean go geographically north. Mm. It just meant go upriver. Right. Yeah. So to think that we, like Aristotle, think that we have an active intellect or an agent intellect that gives us the ability to conceptualize the world the way God conceptualized it is the enormous error. And it's one of the things that separate people today. There's a lot of people that are still Aristotelians thinking, no, 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 God equipped us. We know how to conceptualize the world. And other people saying, uh, no, we really don't. You talk about that as we come to wrestle with truth at a personal level, and, and I'll borrow a phrase from Richard Rohr. He, he's, he talks a lot about, you know, people live in, in, in multiple boxes. You know, you see a box A, and then you have box B, and the goal isn't really to be in box A or box B. They they both That's are dogmatic, right. and the goal is to exactly. sit over here at a posture that um, I'm I'm man enough, or kind enough, or compassionate enough, or honestly not arrogant enough to think that I'm always going to be right, and that my exactly. views might have to change. And so, I feel like you touched on that a bit. You wrote, if I can quote, you know, if God is to make us into the divine likeness, we must return to the self that God initially created before the yeah. world got a hold of us and began shaping right. us into its likeness by accepting the prejudices that it purports as truth. And then you kind of relate exactly. that into returning to our true selves as Nicodemus must. Right. Although that first part is beautiful. Like I, I enjoyed writing that down and I've enjoyed reading about it and praying, kind of thinking of those concepts. What do you mean when you say returning to our true selves as Nicodemus must? Yeah, I, I think uh, who we are at our core is consciousness itself. You know, uh, when people want to explore uh, their personal truth, this, the, the second chapter after the first chapter is on truth. That's a tough chapter going through the different theories of uh, the three basic theories of truth, uh, correspondence, coherence, and 
pragmatic. But then I start talking about personal truth. And people in search of personal truth uh, go to a therapist and want to try and understand what, 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 what are the wounds in my childhood that caused me to become this kind of person? Or they study the Enneagram and want to know about their personality. Or they, they want to explore their sexuality to get deeper into an understanding of who I personally am. Well, I think the deepest level of, of that is pure consciousness. And that's what the contemplative, that's what the mystic is always going toward, coming into that stillness and that silence of pure consciousness. And that's the thing that connects us to God and all other human beings. And I think that's, that's who we really come to identify with. And what I argue in the book is it's only when we get to that place of prayer where we are who we are in that pure consciousness that experiences God's presence uh, that we can really understand the Sermon on the Mount, that we can really understand the parables, because all of a sudden we're beneath all of the cultural stuff, uh, all of the linguistic stuff, and we can see the beauty of Jesus' words. Quick follow-up question. How did they end up translating that? Did they use the word pig or did leave it as bread and make it where nobody I, could understand? I don't know. It, was, it, was, it wasn't a debate in my class, uh, but people were telling me about the debate. I really uh, so want to. Really, I'm going to Google that. Wrong. I'm going to Google it. I have to know. I have, I have to know. Uh, and So uh, this is something that I've been wrestling with since reading your book and specifically about how language and truth go together. Uh, and I remember reading somewhere that they say you don't really understand a language uh, at a at a base level until you dream in that language. And then as yeah. I knock, I talk with other friends that know multiple languages and they see the world differently because of the words that they use to interact with that world. Of course. And so course. I don't often get to speak with philosophers. So my question is, do you feel like personally right now, the reason that America or culture as a, as a whole struggles with transgenderness is because we don't really have an adequate word to say what that is. We still don't have really defined pronouns. We're trying and it's not there. Yeah. And then I also kind of wonder if that maybe relates to why we always view God as masculine because God's, oh, God's not that, but we don't have a word right. physically for something that is this. And so how could we possibly have a word theologically yeah. to go with it? Is yeah, there, exactly. do you feel, do you find any truth in that at all? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's all about, we think that we can reduce God to words. And if we have the right words, that means that we know God. You know, uh, I'm, like I say, I'm doing this Sermon on the Mount book right now. And it's so amazing to me. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that in the last days, there's going to be people who say, we did miracles in your name. And in your name, we prophesied and we did these great things in your name. And Jesus responds, and he doesn't say, you never knew me. But he says, I never knew you. And I relate that to, to two things, to the seed parables, where Jesus says a man went out to sow seed, and he talks about the seed falling on different ground. And then when the disciples ask him to explain the parable, he says, the seed is the word of God. And Jesus is the word of God, contrary to what evangelicals believe. Uh, and I, I can say I'm an evangelical. Uh, the Bible is not the word of God. The Bible never says that it's the word of God. The Bible says that Jesus is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's First John. And also in the 19th chapter of Revelation, uh, it says that uh, his name is the Word of God. And it's internalizing those words, allowing those words to, those, those are the seeds that we allow to come in and, and, and impregnate us and bring forth new life. I, I used to teach a lot of Plato, and I actually had three semesters three semesters with Seth Benodetti at the New School, who was the greatest Plato scholar of the 20th century. Plato in the Symposium uh, has Socrates. It's the only book that, uh, that Plato writes 
where Socrates at the beginning of the book says, oh, this is great, uh, because this is something I know something about, because they're going to talk about eros or love. And uh, with all of the other Plato books, Socrates is always saying, oh, I don't know. I don't know what justice is. I don't know what, what virtue is. I don't know what courage is. But with eros or love, he says, oh, I know what this is. And as it turns out, when he eventually gets to explain what and make his speech about what love is, he says that he learned what love was from the philosopher Diotima, who turns out to have been a woman in, in an enormously sexist Greek culture. The greatest philosopher Socrates ever met was a woman. And she taught him that what, what Eros was, was the desire to impregnate the beautiful and bring forth offspring. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to do with us, uh, with what he says there in the sermon and what, with the seed parables. He's trying to impregnate us with his words. Uh, he, he says, build your house upon the rock. And the rock is the word of God. It's his words that we internalize. And that's what transforms us and makes us into his likeness, not our theology. Uh, that's just, it just seems so silly to me that we think, oh no, if, if I have the right theology, I'll be right with God. No, no. If, if you've internalized Jesus' words uh, and you've become Jesus to the world, that's what he's interested in. On a scale of one to 10, what would you say dogma's weight should be? If, if Jesus' um, words internalizes 10, what, 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 what placeholder should dog, what could dogma hold healthily? I was having lunch with my pastor a couple of weeks ago, and I said something about theology and, and doctrine. And he said, well, it's worth something, isn't it? Um, I shrugged. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's worth much at all. Uh, Jesus' words is a 10... And uh, doctrine keeps you from the journey. Once you have your doctrine, you think, okay, I have it. I've got it now. I've got the truth. No, you don't. The truth is always out in front of you. Uh, In my second truth book, it talks about the second truth is Jesus, and it's always out in front of us. And I'm always trying to get a better understanding of what do you mean by this, Jesus? Uh, How am I supposed to understand this? How am I supposed to integrate this into my life? For those not listening in the back row, hit pause, rewind it two minutes, because Jim is preaching right there. Like I have, <laughs> that was that was that was beautiful. To internalize internalize those words is is what we're going to call contemplative prayer, uh, which yes. I feel like modern church really left by the wayside. Uh, oh, at absolutely. least, it, and and I don't know why. Maybe we don't like emotions. I don't. I don't honestly know enough about sociology to know why, but I, I do know that I wasn't raised that way. Uh, but it's one of the things that I've fallen in love with. It, honestly, in in part from doing this podcast, it's it's forced me to deal with things that I'm not. I didn't know that yep. I was prepared to deal with, uh, and yep. honestly, I'm still often scared that I'm not. But I'm really enjoying it, uh, and yep. I, and I'm learning a lot. I think I'm becoming a better person. I hope I am, but we'll, we'll, I guess we'll see eventually. You talk about that when we're praying and we're meditating on Scripture, and the goal is to you know, pray without ceasing, that we have to sit in the silence for long enough that the silence is silencing us. So what do you mean that the silence silences us? Because I know when I sit you know, downstairs in the basement, you know, subterranean seems to work well because it's damp and it's cold, and I, hear, <laughs> I don't hear the train that runs close to the house. All right. that I'll hear is maybe you know, my kids getting out of bed or something you know, in the middle of the night. But I hear everything. Like I hear the wind moving through the fibers of the carpet, and I find yeah. it distracting. And so how do we get to a place that the silence is itself silencing? I think you have to listen to the silence, and, and because God, God is so beyond words, the only thing that really describes God's presence is the great silence. You know, God is omnipresent. He's always present. The problem is that we're never present, and it's the, we, we make that connection and experience the divine, the presence of the divine, by becoming silent and, and hearing God's silence. Uh, getting down beneath words, beneath all the thoughts. You know, our, our consciousness is constantly flooded with all these thoughts and feelings. Uh, it's just an endless flow, and we're not in control of it. And what, what prayer is all about is going to that place, that solitary place, that silent place, where you're open to nothing but the silence of God. And I think when you get to that place, that's the... it. it God doesn't give you wisdom in that place, but what he gives you is a perspective 
from which you can see the beauty and the goodness of Jesus' words. When you get to that place of all you are is that pure consciousness, you're not your occupation, you're not all the things that the world tells you you are, but you've gotten beneath that identity and you are who you are in God, just this pure consciousness that's connected to the consciousness that's behind all of this and is the creator and maintainer of all of this. Uh, that's, that's the place we get to, and it's from that place that we have the perspective where all of a sudden the words of Jesus make perfect sense. Yeah. And we go, of course I can love my enemies. Of course I can give to everyone who asks. Of course I can you know, do all of the things that Jesus calls us to do. Or at least uh, repent for failing to do those things. And a lot of times I think the failure and the repentance is more valuable than the doing of it. The doing of it makes us into re- righteous jerks, but the failing of it brings us into the experience of mercy and forgiveness. And that really is the end of the law. The end of the law is not obedience. That's what religious people thought in Jesus' day. We're the righteous ones. Why? Because we follow the law. Jesus says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous. Why? Because they've experienced the mercy and forgiveness of God. And it's the mercy and forgiveness of God that makes us into his merciful and forgiving likeness. That's the whole project of the gospel. It's not to be obedient and do what Jesus says, but it's about becoming like Jesus, specifically in terms of mercy and forgiveness. If we ever got that that was the gospel, the the gospel would take over the world tomorrow. But we're not close to that. Do you think we'll get close? Because honestly, the way that things happening right now, just in America, I'm not not hopeful. Do you feel like like it's even attainable? I know. I, I... I'm not hopeful. It doesn't <laughs> look good right now. Uh, but this, this, this gospel thing has been going on for a long time. In every generation, there's people that take it seriously, and they change the world. You know, when, uh, when Mandela does what he did, and Gandhi, I was just reading about Gandhi the other day, that uh, before he would meet with the British officials to try and liberate India, he would memorize the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't think much of Christianity, but he loved Jesus. Mm. And the words of Jesus uh, were what he used as his weapons against the British Empire. And the British left India because of this one man uh, taking seriously the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Mandela, you know, uh, the whole, when he dies, the whole world mourns. Why? Because after being imprisoned and tortured for 26 years, when he becomes president of South Africa... He dances with the people that had imprisoned him. Yeah. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Uh, you, you know, uh, come on, you're in power now. You do to them what they did to you. That's the way of the world. Uh, no, no, there's another way, and it's the Jesus way. And in every generation, there's a handful of people that choose that Jesus way. They're just the minority. And maybe it'll always be the minority, but it, it changes the world. It's worth the effort, and I would argue it's entirely worth the punishment that the world's going to inflict. When we talk about the Jesus way, though, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, love your enemies, you know, love the Lord your God with all your, you know, your heart, your mind, your soul. You deal with the word love in a different way than I've read before. So you, you borrow the word love, or not borrow, you borrow a phrase from uh, a gentleman, uh, Jose... Jose, or Ortega Gasset. Yeah, where yes. you say that he, you know love holds attention or is attention abnormally fixed. fixed. And so when yeah. we think about love and attention that way, what does that then call us to do differently? Because we say, you know, love others, you know, love your neighbor, right. and then right. we don't do anything. And so what does that abnormal attention, you know, and fixation on something, what does that actually call us to do and change at a local level? I I used to teach a class called Philosophies of Love. Uh, One semester, this is several years ago, I had over 100 students in it. Uh, And there there were a lot of different philosophers that I would draw from. Uh, Plato, of course, with the symposium and the idea of impregnating the beautiful and, of course, the words of Jesus. But Ortega y Gasset, this Spanish philosopher of the early 20th century, uh, argued that what love was was attention abnormally fixed. And he was talking about romantic love, but I think it extends way beyond romantic love. Uh, if you, the, the things you love, you give your attention to. If you love golf, 
you give your attention to it. If you love money, you give your attention to it. Uh, my wife used to say to me all the time, we'd go out for dinner and she'd say, you're not here. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, no, I, I heard what you said and I could repeat what she said. But you know what she meant? You're yeah. not attentive. You're not attentive. Uh, and that's all God wants. All God wants is our attention. That's why contemplative prayer is so important. He doesn't want our petitions. He doesn't want our words. He just wants our presence, just to give us his attention. And that's what kids want from parents. It's what friends want. Uh, you want somebody else to pay attention to you. And that's what, that's what God wants. Richard Rohr's line, this is another Richard Rohr line. I've stolen so much from him. <laughs> I was with him 10 years ago. I spent 11 weeks with him. And I, I said something at some point, and he said, oh, that's good. I'm going to use that. And I said, please, be my guest. I've so stolen so much from you. Uh, it seems fair. But, <laughs> uh, he, he says, it's returning the gaze. You know, when lovers are in, you ever been in a restaurant, you see two people in love, and they're not talking. They're just looking at one another mm -hmm. and, and just returning the gaze. And that's what prayer is really all about. It's getting to that place where you're in God's presence and you return the gaze. We're running short on time, and I have about 35 other things that I want to ask you about. So what yeah. does that then do to our spiritual journey? And, and for me, what should that mean as a, you know, as a parent? And so it's easy for me to internalize this and what I need to do. But for, for those listening you know, that, that impact the next generation of believers, what does wrestling with truth and love and intention and fixation and attentiveness do or should do for our journey, you know, with the, those that we have influence on? What I see it for uh, is to keep us in that constant state of repentance. I'm not being attentive. I'm not loving my neighbor as I should. I'm not loving my kids the way I should. I'm not attentive enough. I'm, I'm too involved in myself uh, instead of my neighbor or instead of God. And uh, I think the gospel is all about, you know, Jesus starts... In, in Matthew, as he begins his public ministry, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn nigh. And the, the trick of the Christian life is to find out what do we need to repent for. And I think the, the most essential thing we have to repent for is a lack of love. The two Jesus reduces all of the law to those two laws. Love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, uh, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think what that comes down to is the idea of attentiveness. Are you attentive to the people around you? Are you attentive to God? Do you spend time in God's presence? And that's what love is. It's not a, a, a pleasant feeling or liking. Yeah, I like this and I like that. Uh, but it's, it's deeper than that. It's this, it's this intent attention that we give to people who are not ourselves. You know, most of our attention is focused upon ourselves. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is, no, the trick to life is to not focus upon yourself. Uh, and that's the thing I constantly repent for. Uh, I'm still, I'm focusing constantly on myself and my false identity of who I am in the world. Do you know who I am? You know, somebody said to me the other day, uh, you know, somebody meets you and uh, they don't find out that you have a PhD, you've written all these books, but within the first half an hour, they find out that you were quarterback in high school and in college. Uh, what, what's that all about? <laughs> well, it's about me being stuck with that worldly identity. And I want people to know, you know, I was a quarterback, you know, and just how silly that is because I'm focused upon myself yeah. instead of being focused upon other people and on God. I really want to end our time with this. So you break apart a lot of the parables, you know, that Jesus te uses his teachings. Uh, and you, right. you talk about when Jesus, you know, uses the parables, he's, he's intending to not really answer any questions. Matter of fact, I think he only answers a handful of questions in all right. the gospels. Like he just, people ask him questions and I heard what you said, but we're not talking about that right now. We're, we're going to move right on on. Let me tell you this story about this thing that happened. And so as you were wrestling with these parables and it sounds like you're still wrestling with them. Like they, I, I don't know if maybe right. this is where that book started, but what has been, you know, if you could just pick one parable and be like, you know, here's oh. what I hadn't seen before. And as I relook at this facet, you know, at the facets of this story, here's what I see now. Like, what is the biggest thing at, at this time that has impacted you that way out of these parables? Oh, the, the, 
the story of the prodigal. Henry Nowen says, if you get the story of the prodigal, you get the gospel. And if you don't get the story of the prodigal, you don't get the gospel. The one son, the older son, does it right, and that turns out to be bad. The other son does it wrong, and that turns out to be good. Jesus is turning the world upside down. It's not about obedience and being good. It's about experiencing forgiveness and mercy in order that you might become merciful and forgiving. Mm. That's what the younger son realizes, and the older son doesn't. That's the gospel right there. That's beautiful. Point people in the right direction, Gems. Where do they interact with you? Uh, how do they? Obviously, this book is on Amazon and probably everywhere else that you know that you can buy books. But how do they connect with you? My publisher is Paragon House. It's just a great, it's such a blessing to me. My the publisher at Paragon House, Gordon uh, Anderson, has a PhD in philosophy of religion from Claremont. So this has been uh, an enormous benefit to me. As a matter of fact. Uh, he, he contributed greatly to this book that's coming out March 1st. Uh, he had some great insights, and, and I was wise enough to listen to his insights, and it's really shaped this book. But I, I have a website, too, uh, jamespdanaher.com. I, I don't interact much with the website, but it has all my books there and my articles and, and stuff like that. Fantastic. Well, I'll definitely, for those listening, go to the show notes. I'll link to that. Um, well, thank you so much again, Jim, for your time. Uh, and thank you for this book. And and as people are listening, do yourself a service and buy this. And, and honestly, Jim, I, we got to get you marketing better because I need books like this in more people's hands. I, I honestly think that this type of thought, it, it will be what makes at least the Western church stop the implosion. Parts of it, I think, are already imploded and probably irreparably so. But but texts like what you're doing and other theologians and philosophers and, 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 and good thinkers are doing, I think, can be so impactful. So thanks for writing it and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Seth. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come to me and rest. Lay down your weary head, lay down upon my chest. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Oh, my soul, rejoice. But I, found I would challenge each and every one of you to be more flexible and understanding as those that hold a different truth than you. They may have that truth for a reason, and it may be a good reason, whether or not you agree with it, but have a conversation with others, and a conversation intending to hear, with a mindset of permissibility for differing viewpoints. And I think if we can do that, man, it's going to be good. Thank you so much for listening today. The music that you heard featured is from Ben and Noel Kilgore. You'll find links to their music in the show notes, and the tracks from today will be listed on the Spotify playlist which is a fantastic playlist. There's hundreds of songs there, and it is, it's one of my favorite playlists. And I know I'm biased because I created it, but it really is a good playlist. So listen to it there. You'll find links to all that in the show notes. I will talk with you next week. I really pray that your Lenten season is going well and that you're hearing our Lord in a way that you didn't hear yesterday. Talk to you soon.
Found in him a resting place.